This week we're looking at missile strikes in Syria, snap elections in Turkey, potential peace talks with Afghani Taliban, state of emergency in Colombia, and a special interview segment with Dr. Alan Bloomfield on Indian and Chinese strategic competition. Welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 20th of April. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. Now onto this week's roundup. The United Kingdom, France, and the United States of America have conducted a joint strike mission using air and naval-based missiles to hit three targets in Syria. These three targets are stated to be linked to the Syrian chemical weapons program and are a response to the alleged chemical weapons attack inside of Syria. In addition, a fact-finding team from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW, has yet to be able to access the alleged attack site in Douma after being held back by large crowds at one site and gunfire in the vicinity of the second. The OPCW is not an agency of the United Nations. In addition, it has no authority to apportion responsibility for an attack. It is only permitted to gather facts from the site and communicate those to the wider world. The United States of America's ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, has also suggested a new round of sanctions against Russia would be announced this last week, but they have yet to be officially announced and appear to have been abandoned by President Trump for the time being. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, stated that there has been no Russian tampering of the site and that their experts had found no trace of chemical weapons. Now to Turkey and its snap elections. The Turkish government has stated that it will be holding presidential and parliamentary elections earlier than expected. Originally slated for November 2019, the new date of June 24, 2018 will mean that elections will be conducted during a state of emergency. Originally enacted in the wake of the attempted coup in July 2016, the state of emergency was extended for another three months by Parliament on Wednesday. This will be the first election made under new constitutional rules that empower the presidency with additional powers beyond the historical unity building and ceremonial nature of the role. The constitutional referendum in 2017 passed with a narrow 51.41% to 58.59% victory margin for expanded powers for the president. Some of these changes include uh, the president no longer requiring to terminate their party membership if they have one, and the president becoming both head of state and head of government with the power to appoint and sack ministers and the vice president. Originally, the president, in light of the unity-building aspect of the role, would have to abandon their party membership and take a more objective uh, position within the country. Uh, This change would allow the president to retain party membership. Human Rights Watch and the Venice Commission, which is an advisory body made up of expert constitutional lawyers, have publicly made statements declaring the new laws are a threat to democracy in Turkey. On to Afghanistan and Pakistan. During a visit by Pakistan's Prime Minister, Shahid Kakan Abbasi, to Afghanistan, he and Afghan President Ashraf Ghani called upon the Taliban to engage in peace talks. Ghani offered to reopen negotiations without preconditions, despite ongoing attacks in the country by the Taliban. Previously, both Pakistan and Afghanistan have accused each other of hosting Taliban forces. Pakistan of hosting forces that act in Afghanistan and vice versa. Popularly known as Afghanistan Taliban and the ones operating Pakistan as the Pakistani Taliban. Both countries have denied these allegations. The Afghan and Pakistan meeting and proposal for talks demonstrates an easing in tensions and potentially a political path to the end of war in Afghanistan. U.S. drone strikes in Afghanistan and Pakistan continue to complicate the situation as well as increasingly strained relations between Pakistan and the U.S. 
the U.S. has suspended approximately $2 billion in assistance to Pakistan due to the alleged hosting of Afghan Taliban in Pakistan. Now on to Colombia. The governor of Norte de Santander, William Villalmazar, has declared a state of emergency due to fighting between rival rebel groups. The EPL, the Popular Liberation Army, and the ELN, the National Liberation Army, have been fighting for control of a cocoa region in this province of the northeast of Colombia. Much of this region on the border with Venezuela used to be the, under the influence of FARC rebels. However, they had signed a historic peace agreement with the government of President Juan Manuel Santos in 2016, and the group has now become a political party. But that demobilization of their forces has left a power vacuum in several areas, and now you're seeing the EPL and the ELN trying to fill that vacuum uh, with their own forces. This has resulted in uh, similar issues that the FARC had with the government, with the Colombian government suspending peace talks with the ELN in January following attacks in the north of the country. While the peaceful and political resolution with the FARC rebel group holds the potential for future resolution with these two groups, their continued existence in fighting is a source of trouble within the country. That's it for this week's roundup. Now to this week's interview with Dr. Alan Bloomfield. As India and China have risen to prominence in recent years, their emergence as potential modern great powers has greatly shifted the balance of power in Asia and the Indo-Pacific region. This week we'll be discussing Indian and Chinese strategic competition. I'm extremely lucky to be speaking with Dr. Alan Bloomfield. Dr. Bloomfield is an international relations expert and academic. He has written a wide range of academic articles and two books. In addition, he has researched and taught at Canada's Queen's University, as well as the University of New South Wales, University of Western Australia, and the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Bloomfield specializes in Indian foreign policy, global norm dynamics, Australian strategic and defense policy, and strategic culture more generally. Welcome to the Envoy podcast, Dr. Bloomfield. Thank you. Happy to be here. So to start off, could you tell us a little bit how India and China view each other in modern times? Well, their relationship is difficult at best, I think would be the way to put it. Uh, it's very complex, of course. They do engage with each other at great length. Quite a bit of trading, although uh, there's a very heavy trade imbalance in China's favour, which does cause some angst in India. But uh, to understand their relationship properly, we need to go back in history, and particularly back to the late 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, there was a lot of effort on the part of uh, both governments to uh, improve relations and essentially act in the 1950s as a counterweight to Western powers. But the relationship broke down uh, and resulted in a war in 1962. Uh, the Indians lost that war and it's been a source of humiliation for them ever since. And the other th very important thing to understand about the relationship between these two powers and why it remains fraught with difficulties today uh, is immediately after that war, the Chinese became heavy backers of Pakistan uh, and essentially for the express purpose of keeping India down or distracted by events in its own region so that India could not be a counterweight to China in the wider region. And that general policy uh, remains in place today and the Indians remain very un unhappy and upset about it. So is the contention more of between the nation's borders or is it more the kind of spheres of influence, the idea of China being uh, closely allied with Pakistan and, and other allied countries rather than a direct confrontation? 
Look, there's a whole range of issues. So there is the direct issue of the border. In fact, there's several uh, border uh, issues between them. The most serious uh, concerns the northern half of the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh. The Chinese claim that as South Tibet. Uh, and so that is the most serious of the, the uh, border issues. But there's uh, Aksai Chin area on the other side, on the western side of the border. Uh, and there was a standoff at Doklam last year over disputed territory near uh, Bhutan. Okay. So that's the direct sort of issues, but in more general sense, yes, you're right to characterise it as, a, uh, as also these wider issues over influence. So the Indians are, as I said before, particularly upset at the way the Chinese boost Pakistan. Uh, China is essentially responsible for Pakistan's nuclear weapon uh, or you know, weapons program. But also the Indians have become in the last decade or so quite uh, upset about what is known as the string of pearls strategy. Mm. Uh, China building new ports across the Indian Ocean. India regards the Indian Ocean unsurprisingly as its sphere of influence. And so you know, they're unhappy about this. More recently, the inf uh, or the contention between them has moved into a new area, and that's Indian or India has set itself up as the most uh, vocal opponent of China's Belt and Road Initiative, and they are especially unhappy about the infrastructure that will be built in Pakistan, mm. because some of that will go through what India claims, well, part of the western half of Kashmir, which India yep. claims is its territory. But the Indians have been making a lot of, uh, or telling everyone very loudly about the dangers of debt bondage. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, so that's when states accept money from China to build this infrastructure, and then that gives China leverage or influence over those states. Mm -hmm. And the example that India is using at the moment, most obviously, is Sri Lanka with the Hambantota port, the basic story there is that China lent Sri Lanka, I think, I think something like eight billion US dollars uh, to build the port. The Sri Lankans have been unable to uh, pay that loan back. And so China has extracted a 99 year lease for one of its state owned enterprises to run that port. And there's a lot of uh, concern, or the, at least the Indians are saying to everybody else, watch out, mm. this might happen to you. Yeah. And so for listeners back home, Sri Lanka is kind of equivalent to maybe Tasmania or Papua New Guinea to Australia in terms of it's a very close island that is considered to be basically within their own area of control. And for China to be right up next door to India is really a strategic no-no for, for India's perspective as it feels yep. constrained. And this idea of string of pearls where from the Straits of Malacca near Singapore all the way to Djibouti in Africa, there's this link of ports along the way that China will be able to use to maintain trade and eventually possibly naval forces as they build up their blue water navy and expand outwards. Yep, that's exactly right. And all these ports are supposed to be um, commercial ports only. Mm. So certainly the agreements that China has signed with Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, Seychelles, Djibouti, etc., Actually, I'll come back to Djibouti in, in a second because it's slightly different. All these agreements don't say that this can also be used as a naval base. Mm. Uh, however, they are big enough to uh, dock aircraft carriers. Wow. Uh, and, you know, that like they've built the docks that are big enough. Yeah. And so 
there is a concern from India and also from the United States, uh, from Australia to some extent, that uh, these might become dual-use ports in the future. Mm. Would it, from any kind of objective viewpoint, would the ports established really warrant the the usage of those areas? Are the ports too big for really what would be reasonably expected and thus kind of tipping their hand as being potential use in the future for other means or just a possibility of dual use in the future? Uh, I would say just a possibility of dual use because um, aircraft carriers are very big, but Mm. super tankers and other large container ships are even bigger. Okay. And so the ports uh, have these docks that are big enough for these commercial ships. Just to move out of uh, the India-China context, very briefly, you might have seen the news, there's a bit of uh, angst in Canberra Mm -hmm. that Vanuatu may allow China to build a military base. Now, that's an example where the dock that China has built in Vanuatu is big enough, not necessarily for an aircraft carrier, but for, you know, large ships like cruisers and destroyers and so on. And there's been... Uh, questions raised as to whether Vanuatu needs a dock that size mm. for its commercial operations. Yeah, uh, I should also just quickly return to the issue of Djibouti. Yeah, so Djibouti is uh, China now does have a military base in Djibouti, but it's quite small. And we should also remember that uh, a number of other nations have similar facilities. So the United States, France, and I think maybe even Japan, uh, or certainly several of the Western powers have a base. Uh, or have little, you know, f- small facilities, more or less the same size as China's. Mm. Nevertheless, it is still important uh, because it's the first time China has established a military base anywhere yep. uh, outside of China in Chinese history. Yeah, so it's it's not unprecedented in terms of world powers engaging us, but for China it is basically unprecedented until the modern era. That's right. And to take you back a little bit deeper in history, I actually just wrote a chapter earlier this year, which will get published uh, the second half of the year, for some Indians who were, uh, wanted me to write about China, sorry, Indian attitudes to extra-regional powers operating in South Asia. And so the research I did suggested uh, very, very clearly that Indians are upset when anyone is operating in what they consider to be their region, mm. so South Asia and the Indian Ocean more generally. So they got quite upset, for example, when America established the base at Diego Garcia which is right, uh, like a little set of islands right in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And that was set up in the early 70s. Mm. They now seem to be much less angsty about that because they see that as a way to counterbalance China. You know, the American presence there is, is a, you know, America and China are at best strategic rivals. Yes. Uh, well, I wouldn't say they're enemies yet. But Indians are sensitive to, you know, extra-regional powers operating in their region. They're now especially sensitive towards the Chinese operating in their mm. region. And it is tied in with their own identity as a, a at least a great civilization. I don't mm. believe that they, are, they could be called or should be called a great power yet, mm. but they believe they are. And they, you, know, it, you can understand why they would uh, believe themselves to be a great power based on their size, and their uh, long-standing uh, civilization. It's much like China. They have a long civilizational history that they yep. can point back to when they had you know, great powers and were respected. Yep. Uh, right. Well, it was a variations of nations at the time, but they, they were a respected people for a long, long time. Yeah, the Chinese and the Indians uh, have 
uh, a sort of great power identity of the sort that would just not be associated with uh, or uh, proper for small nations. You know, Switzerland or mm. Djibouti, uh, yes. for example, uh, <laughs> would never regard themselves as such. So the Indians are sensitive to this. They're sensitive to the another great power, China, pushing into uh, their region uh, because they need... Uh, one of the things that distinguishes great powers from other uh, nations is the ability to dominate events in their own region. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I would say uh, that India is not a great power at the moment, because it's it's too distracted by Pakistan. There are other things we could talk about, but it blames the Chinese for that, because without Chinese assistance, Pakistan would not be able to present the sort of challenge that it does. Mm. And so... Would you say that's the difference between China's rise and India's rise is that as China has risen, it's had this increased impact on the world stage with your know, South China Sea disputes. It's been vetoing uh, resolutions in the UN Security Council about intervening militarily in Syria, where India seems to be more hands off uh, and less yep. involved. Yeah. So this is the argument that I've made in a paper I published recently that, you know, so I, I go through various reasons why India can't be considered a great power yet, and part of it is they're actually not as powerful as we might think. So they're significantly smaller than China, for example, probably uh, you know roughly only one third to one quarter the size in total GDP, and their military is much less uh, uh, you know potent and active. But I also the main part of my argument is that they don't act like a great power that they don't insert themselves into crises or mm. international issues and try to shape events. They tend to try to avoid and let other countries do the heavy lifting. Mm. Uh, and so my, my article was mainly focused on the Syrian war and India is conspicuous by its absence mm. in the way that the Americans and the Russians aren't and even the Chinese are more uh, involved in that. As you said, the Chinese have, um, you know, vetoed a number of Security Council draft resolutions, in India is not on the Security Council. And in fact, just to go back into history, this is another reason why they are upset at China. Because in the uh, late 1950s, or maybe it was the mid-50s, India was quite strongly backing China. So that, in, And what I mean by that is that Taiwan was holding that with China's seat on yes, the Security the Council. Was, yeah. And the Indians were saying, no, you know, Beijing should hold that seat because Beijing controls the vast majority of uh, you know, Chinese provinces, all the mainland ones. And so they were backing the Chinese. But even to the point where at one stage, I think it was the British made a proposal, and I'm fairly certain this is the late 50s, saying, look, if we throw China off the council, do you want to take their seat? And oh, the wow. Indians said, no, no, you know, we stand in solidarity with our Chinese brothers. A couple of years after that, China invades and fights a war mm. uh, in the northeast uh, provinces, the one that I mentioned before in 1962. So there's this feeling that they, the Indians have basically been betrayed by the Chinese. I'm always surprised when I'm in India the extent to which they remember the 62 war. It's constantly coming up. And to me, somebody who's an Australian and a relatively object objective observer of events, you know, that's... 55, 60 years ago, mm. um, why keep bringing it up? It's a little bit like the Vietnam War, and now U.S. and Vietnam are getting on very well. They had the first U.S. Character yep. vi uh, carrier visiting in the recent past, and so they seem to have gotten over it for perhaps strategic reasons, reasons with China getting bigger, but yep. all the more reason for India to feel the same. 
Um, yes, and that's I right. guess on that note, then, uh, if China continues to rise, do you think it'll become more closely aligned to US uh, and maybe positive alliance? Obviously, we've seen uh, US and Japan joining India in these you know, naval exercises in the yep. recent past. Do you think they'd ever get to the point where they'd actually give up their more non-aligned type of and standoffish approach and actually get into bed, as it were, with the, the US alliance system? I would be very surprised to see a formal alliance because uh, you're right to mention the non-aligned uh, foreign policy. That, again, was another key aspect of Nehru's foreign policy, the first Prime Minister of India in the 1950s. Now that it's not really proper to talk about non-alignment anymore because of the end of the Cold War, so the Indians have instead inserted the phrase uh, strategic autonomy. Mm. And so that really expresses, again, this is, a, a, I suppose, related to the uh, way they see themselves as a great power, that they don't want to be a junior ally. So Australia is quite happy to be a junior ally of America because obviously we are not a great power and mm. unlikely to ever be so. But India would know that if it was an ally of America, it would be regarded as a junior partner, like all American allies are. And its self-image doesn't allow it to do that. Mm. Nevertheless, it is sort of... The Indians like talking about alignments rather okay. than alliances. So they are being much more active in essentially trying to seek out anti-China alignments. Mm. So they... Uh, in fact, the news has just come through today uh, that it looks like they will sign the agreement with the Japanese to buy maritime surveillance planes from Japan. Okay. That would be... U-2s, was it? Was it not? U-2A or something Mm. like that. Uh, And it's it's quite a historic deal if if these reports are true because it's the first arms that Japan has sold to anyone since the end of the Second World War. And it's interesting that they're selling them to the Indians and that they're maritime surveillance planes Mm. of the sort that can watch these Chinese string of pearls. But India, as you mentioned, is also, um, they consented to Japan joining the Malabar exercises. So from now on, every year, these naval exercises will be held with India and American and Japanese navies. Australia is likely to be invited in as well. India is also starting to align itself with uh, Vietnam, so selling them, I think it's called the Brahmos, or certainly one of their cruise missiles, and naval cruise missiles. So in a sense, you can see the Indians developing a tit-for-tat strategy. So they are saying to the Chinese, well, you're pushing into our backyard, so we're going to push into yours. Mm. I would say this is well short of containment, and I use that word... Uh, deliberately because we saw containment policy from on the part of the West against the Soviet Union through the Cold War. No one is trying to contain China at the moment. They're hedging against China. Mm. There's, there's a bit of balancing with against China, but also uh, these states, India, Australia, America, um, much of uh, Asia, is also engaging China, mm. sort of hedging their bets. And so India is, is joining that, that party. And I don't think we will see an alliance, as I said, between India and other states. It's just not what the Indians do. But they are trying to send these messages to China. The way I put it is trying to complicate China's calculations. So if China does decide that it wants to become the regional hegemon and essentially push America out and dominate Japan and other regional actors, the Indians are saying, well, you might have to contend with us too. Yeah, and so... 
obviously India would prefer not to have to have that issue come up. And obviously, if they had become aligned with the US, they know that the US prefer to buck past to the Indians through the heavy lifting because in, in realist terms, they're on China's doorstep. They're the ones who are most at risk of China becoming a hegemon and then that influencing them, whereas America can always potentially retreat to its own area. But yep. so are they somewhat skeptical of the US invitations as more of the, the US just trying to pull them into uh, an alignment where they'll have to do the heavy lifting anyway? So, you know, What's yeah. the point? So there is, uh, there remains quite a bit of opposition in uh, Indian domestic politics to becoming too closely aligned with America. One of the reasons is the reason you gave, uh, that they are worried that America will essentially sort of push them forward, mm. you know, and uh, say, oh, you, you take China on. But also um, we need to go back deeper into history. So America is essentially regarded as an imperialist power you know, Western imperialist power. Uh, and so you have sort of a strong post-colonial element in India that rejects all uh, alignments with Western powers. You have relatively strong Marxist parties as well in India, although they are declining in influence. So there are reasons why, domestic reasons, you know, or opposition to getting too close to America. But I think the Indians are having to, you know, try to work out... Uh, how they deal with China. And while ever China is pushing into that area and essentially backing Pakistan as a you know distraction for India and a thorn in India's side, mm. I can't really see how relations between those two states will improve very much. Mm. You're right, though. India's not going to go to the forefront of balancing against China. Uh, it will want to pass the buck to America. Mm. Everyone seems to want to pass the buck to America at the moment. America is the only uh, nation that is prepared to carry out freedom of navigation patrols through the territorial waters that China claims, these 12-mile limit around the Chinese mm. islands. But again, we hear rumours Indonesia might want to do a freedom of navigation patrol with Australia. India has been talked about doing one possibly with Vietnam. Uh, and so th these are all ways of just sending signals to China to not push too far. Mm. Otherwise, if it does, the pushback will come uh, in the form of moving you know, with India and others towards a containment policy. So we talked about it a little bit earlier and you mentioned how Pakistan's nuclear weapons program was greatly assisted by the Chinese. Do you think the density of nuclear weapons between all these states, China, Pakistan and, China, uh, and India, increase the danger or decrease the danger of competition? Do you think it's going mm. to put a stopper on, on how things can escalate or do you think their presence could create miscalculations? There's always a danger of miscalculations. So the more states that have nuclear weapons, the greater chance there is of mistakes being made or some sort of irrational uh, actor launching a first strike. Pakistan and China uh, both have nuclear weapons and of course so does India. When India got its or tested its nuclear weapons in the late 1990s, everyone knew it was in response to the Pakistani tests, but they made a very big point of saying it's also about China. Mm. Uh, and so I, I think that there are concerns about Pakistan's con command and control. The Indians seem to have much better control over their nuclear weapons. The Chinese uh, do as well. So I think the dangers of a nuclear exchange are, are small and they remain small. I will say, though, that one of the concerns that strategists have is that competition in the South China Sea, which, as I've mentioned, is starting to include India, mm -hmm. 
you know, they they don't have a direct claim, but they're sort of backing Vietnam and they're doing more exercises with the Americans and Japanese and Australians and so on. Mm. That's a potential worry when we think about nuclear weapons because it's much easier from a political perspective to use nuclear weapons in a naval dispute because a few thousand sailors die rather than a whole city getting wiped out. Mm. Still, we're a long way from that. Yes. Uh, as I, I want to stress that even though India might be sort of pushing back against China, it is still essentially hedging. Mm. Uh, it is, you know, if it was containing in an outright way, it would not be trading with China, for example. True. Uh, and so it's still hedging its bets like most of uh, Southeast Asia, including Australia. Mm. And so I guess we can end on what you think the future of uh, of uh, Indian and Chinese relations are, and, it's, and also Indian foreign relations in general. Okay, so the future of India-China relations, I can't see any real prospect of them improving much, and I expect them to generally deteriorate steadily and slowly. And that's uh, primarily because China, under Xi Jinping, has made it very clear that they have abandoned the Deng-era foreign policy, often known as hide and bide, mm. a sort of a, uh, you know, deng uh, Xiaoping back in the late 1970s or maybe it was in the early 80s I think he enunciated this doctrine so that China should not be a particularly active international player so it doesn't threaten everybody uh, Xi Jinping has definitely departed from that with his somewhat ambiguous Chinese or China dream mm. and you can interpret that in different ways if you're a if you interpret in a very positive way then you know China is going to get along harmoniously with everyone uh, the pessimists say, well, it's a plan to make China number one again, that they believe that they are sort of naturally destined to be number one. If China continues down that road, the pessimistic interpretation, if, if that is correct, then India will continue to uh, oppose it and yep. probably strong or more and more strongly. However, you know, it, it's possible that uh, China will sort of back down. And that would give the potential for uh, in, uh, you know, the, the relationship to improve. Nevertheless, I'm pessimistic about it. In terms of Indian foreign policy generally, I don't think that India will uh, become a great power for some time, simply because it has too many developmental issues to, to deal with at home. So its trajectory is, you know, we can look at the Chinese development trajectory in the rough analogy. So the Chinese switched to a export-led growth model back in 1978. So they started growing earlier than India because India didn't really open its economy until the mid-90s mm. after the 1991 economic crisis forced reforms. And they still haven't opened themselves up as much as... Well, well they're still one of the most protected economies Especially in the world. Especially agriculture, is it such a key industry? Yes, and in fact, they've just put more tariffs on Australian chickpeas. <laughs> So this is purely domestic purposes. They're trying to protect their chickpea farmers and their farmers generally. But it means that you know the hopes that Australia and India would sign a free trade agreement are dashed. Mm. It's just not going to happen. And I think the Adani coal mine thing is going to fall over as well. So this suggests that India started the process of development later than China and it hasn't opened up as much international trade as China did. And that's reflected by the fact that its growth has you know, never reached the sort of 12%, 13% per annum growth that China mm. was getting you know, some time ago now, but they really were racing ahead at the time. So India's started behind China. It's still a long way behind China. It's going to be a long time before it can uh, catch up as a player. 
you know, to be a real player yep. on the international scene and, you know, to be a great power, the way I put it before. And so, yeah, that I, I think we'll continue to see roughly the same sort of tra- trajectory with Indian foreign policy. They won't be especially active power. They won't be inserting themselves in crises, uh, trying to shape the outcome, which I think is one of the key attributes of a great power. Although one aspect of it, their China policy, they may become more activist. Mm. Uh, I just don't see them becoming a more activist player, generally speaking. Only by necessity. That's right. Sort of being provoked by China Mm. and so pushing back against China. But I don't think we'll see a sort of a sea change in Indian foreign policy. They will remain sort of cautious actor, reactive, trying to hide from responsibilities Mm. uh, and pursue their own interests rather than putting themselves out there and taking risks on behalf of the international community more generally. Keep your eye on this space. They are getting pretty good economic growth at the moment, probably somewhere around sort of 7 to 8%. Uh, and So it's probably like a little touch faster than China. But they're still a long way behind. As mm. I said before, depending on how you measure economies, they're probably only one third to one quarter the size of the Chinese economy. Yeah, so 6% of a third of that economy is nowhere near 6% at three times the size of the economy. So even if they're growing at the same rate uh, per annum, uh, their respective GDPs would mean China would be pulling ahead even further. Uh, Or at least in absolute terms. Absolute terms, Yeah, like the Indians, to catch up with, because the Mm. Chinese growth uh, figures were just released yesterday, 6.8%. It's probably not very accurate. It's probably closer (laughs) to, you know, four and a half, five. That's still pretty fast. Uh, certainly compared to developed states, you just can't trust the Chinese growth uh, statistics because they're not an open society. Mm. Uh, you know, the Communist Party definitely fiddles around with, with the figures. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. The Indians, to catch China, they would have to significantly increase their economic growth rate and then sustain that for 25 years. Yeah. So, you know... It's a tall order. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, the Chinese growth story is perhaps a unique one in in world history. No one else has grown quite so fast. The only thing I will say, though, is there's more and more concern about Chinese debt problems. So the the official figures came out the other day, 250%, you know, debt or debt to GDP ratio is 250%. And that's higher than Greece when it went down and, you know, much higher than America during the financial crisis. It's unprecedented, and it's probably significantly higher. A lot of, I've seen figures suggesting it's closer to 350%, because, again, you can't trust Chinese official figures, and there's a shadow banking sector. Mm. So, you know, who knows? Maybe China will sort of collapse in a heap or at least go into a low growth period, something like the Japanese did after their crisis in the 1990s. Uh, but if China keeps on chugging along, the way it is now, yeah, it'll take decades before India can uh, really match it. All right. Well, thank you very much for your insight and for joining us on the Envoy podcast. Thanks. Thanks for asking me. I hope you've enjoyed this special interview version of the podcast. We're reaching out to other experts at this time, and we're hoping to bring you more of these type of interviews in the future. As always, you can find us at our website, envoyfpa.org. In addition, if you have any questions, comments, or requests, you can send that to our email at envoyuwa at gmail.com. I've been your host, Nathan Shaw, and we'll be back with more news from around the world and foreign policy analysis.